Chapter Ten of Matilda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. Matilda, by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Chapter Ten. It was six months after this miserable conclusion to his long-nursed hopes, that I first saw him. He had retired to a part of the country where he was not known, that he might peacefully indulge his grief. All the world, by the death of his beloved Eleanor, was changed to him, and he could no longer remain in any spot where he had seen her, or where her image mingled with the most rapturous hopes had brightened all around with a light of joy which would now be transformed to a darkness blacker than midnight, since she, the sun of his life, was set for ever. He lived for some time never looking on the light of heaven, but shrouding his eyes in a perpetual darkness far from all that could remind him of what he had been. But as time softened his grief, like a true child of nature, he sought in the enjoyment of her beauties for a consolation in his unhappiness. He came to a part of the country where he was entirely unknown, and where in the deepest solitude he could converse only with his own heart. He found a relief to his impatient grief in the breezes of heaven, and in the sound of waters and woods. He became fond of riding. This exercise distracted his mind and elevated his spirits. On a swift horse he could for a moment gain respite from the image that else for ever followed him. Eleanor, on her deathbed, her sweet features changed, and the soft spirit that animated her gradually waning into extinction. For many months Woodville had in vain endeavoured to cast off this terrible remembrance. It still hung on him, until memory was too great a burden for his loaded soul. But when on horseback, the spell that seemingly held him to this idea was snapped. Then, if he thought of his lost bride, he pictured her radiant in beauty, he could hear her voice, and fancy her a sylvan huntress by his side, while his eyes brightened as he thought he gazed on her cherished form. I had several times seen him ride across the heath, and felt angry that my solitude should be disturbed. It was so long since I had spoken to any but peasants, that I felt a disagreeable sensation at being gazed on by one of superior rank. I feared also that it might be some one who had seen me before. I might be recognised, my impostures discovered, and I dragged back to a life of worse torture than that I had before endured. These were dreadful fears, and they even haunted my dreams. I was one day seated on the verge of the clump of pines, when Woodville rode past. As soon as I perceived him, I suddenly rose to escape from his observation by entering among the trees. My rising startled his horse, he reared and plunged, and the rider was at length thrown. The horse then galloped swiftly across the heath, and the stranger remained on the ground, stunned by his fall. He was not materially hurt. A little fresh water soon recovered him. 
I was struck by his exceeding beauty, and as he spoke to thank me, the sweet but melancholy cadence of his voice brought tears into my eyes. A short conversation passed between us, but the next day he again stopped at my cottage, and by degrees an intimacy grew between us. It was strange to him to see a female in extreme youth, I was not yet twenty, evidently belonging to the first classes of society, and possessing every accomplishment an excellent education could bestow, living alone on a desolate heath, one on whose forehead the impress of grief was strongly marked, and whose words and motions betrayed that her thoughts did not follow them, but were intent on far other ideas, bitter and overwhelming miseries. I was dressed also in a whimsical, nun-like habit, which denoted that I did not retire to solitude from necessity, but that I might indulge in a luxury of grief and fanciful seclusion. He soon took great interest in me, and sometimes forgot his own grief to sit beside me and endeavour to cheer me. He could not fail to interest even one who had shut herself from the whole world, whose hope was death, and who lived only with the departed. His personal beauty, his conversation which glowed with imagination and sensibility, the poetry that seemed to hang upon his lips, and to make the very air mute to listen to him, were charms that no one could resist. He was younger, less worn, more passionless than my father, and in no degree reminded me of him. He suffered under immediate grief, yet its gentle influence, instead of calling feelings otherwise dormant into action, seemed only to veil that which otherwise would have been too dazzling for me. When we were together I spoke little, yet my selfish mind was sometimes borne away by the rapid course of his ideas. I would lift my eyes with momentary brilliancy, until memories that never died, and seldom slept, would recur, and a tear would dim them. Woodville for ever tried to lead me to the contemplation of what is beautiful and happy in the world. His own mind was constitutionally bent to a former belief in good rather than in evil, and this feeling, which must even exhilarate the hopeless, ever shone forth in his words. He would talk of the wonderful powers of man, of their present state and of their hopes, of what they had been and what they were, and when reason could no longer guide him, his imagination, as if inspired, shed light on the obscurity that veils the past and the future. He loved to dwell on what might have been the state of the earth before man lived on it, and how he first arose and gradually became the strange, complicated, but as he said, the glorious creature he now is covering the earth with their creations, and forming by the power of their minds another world more lovely than the visible frame of things, even all the world that we find in their writings. A beautiful creation, he would say, which may claim this superiority to its model, that good and evil is more easily separated, the good rewarded in the way they themselves desire, the evil punished, as all things evil ought to be punished, not by pain, 
which is revolting to all philanthropy to consider, but by quiet obscurity, which simply deprives them of their harmful qualities. Why kill the serpent when you have extracted his fangs? The poetry of his language and ideas, which my words ill convey, held me enchained to his discourses. It was a melancholy pleasure to me to listen to his inspired words, to catch for a moment the light of his eyes, to feel a transient sympathy, and then to awaken from the delusion, again to know that all this was nothing, a dream, a shadow, for that there was no reality for me. My father had for ever deserted me, leaving me only memories, which set an eternal barrier between me and my fellow-creatures. I was indeed fellow to none. He, Woodville, mourned the loss of his bride. Others wept the various forms of misery as they visited them. But infamy and guilt was mingled with my portion. Unlawful and detestable passion had poured its poison into my ears and changed all my blood, so that it was no longer the kindly stream that supports life, but a cold fountain of bitterness, corrupted in its very source. It must be the excess of madness that could make me imagine that I could ever be aught but one alone, struck off from humanity, bearing no affinity to man or woman, a wretch on whom nature had set her ban. Sometimes Woodville talked to me of himself. He related his history, brief in happiness and woe, and dwelt with passion on his and Eleanor's mutual love. She was, he said, the brightest vision that ever came upon the earth. There was something in her frank countenance, in her voice, and in every motion of her graceful form that overpowered me, as if it were a celestial creature that deigned to mingle with me in intercourse more sweet than man had ever before enjoyed. Sorrow fled before her, and her smile seemed to possess an influence like light to irradiate all mental darkness. It was not like a human loveliness that these gentle smiles went and came, but as a sunbeam on a lake, now light and now obscure, flitting before as you strove to catch them, and fold them for ever to your heart. I saw this smile fade for ever. Alas! I could never have believed that it was indeed Eleanor that died, if once, when I spoke, she had not lifted her almost benighted eyes, and for one moment, like naught beside on earth, more lovely than a sunbeam, slighter, quicker than the waving plumage of a bird, dazzling as lightning, and like it giving day to night, yet mild and faint, that smile came. It went, and then there was an end of all joy to me. Thus his own sorrows, or the shapes copied from nature that dwelt in his mind with beauty greater than their own, occupied our talk, while I railed in my own griefs with cautious secrecy. If for a moment he showed curiosity, my eyes fell, my voice died away, and my evident suffering made him quickly endeavour to banish the ideas he had awakened. 
yet he for ever mingled consolation in his talk, and tried to soften my despair by demonstrations of deep sympathy and compassion. "'We are both unhappy,' he would say to me. "'I have told you my melancholy tale, and we have wept together the loss of that lovely spirit that has so cruelly deserted me. But you hide your griefs. I do not ask you to disclose them, but tell me if I may not console you. It seems to me a wild adventure to find in this desert one like you, quite solitary. You are young and lovely. Your manners are refined and attractive, yet there is in your settled melancholy, and something, I know not what, in your expressive eyes, that seems to separate you from your kind. You shudder. Pardon me, I entreat you, but I cannot help expressing this once, at least the lively interest I feel in your destiny. You never smile, your voice is low, and you utter your words as if you were afraid of the slight sound they would produce. The expression of awful and intense sorrow never for a moment fades from your countenance. I have lost for ever the loveliest companion that any man could ever have possessed, one who rather appears to have been a superior spirit, who by some strange accident wandered among us earthly creatures, than as belonging to our own kind. Yet I smile, and sometimes I speak almost forgetful of the change I have endured. But your sad mien never alters, your pulses beat and you breathe, yet you seem already to belong to another world. And sometimes, pray pardon my wild thoughts, when you touch my hand, I am surprised to find your hand warm, when all the fire of life seems extinct within you. When I look upon you, the tears you shed, the soft deprecating look with which you withstand inquiry, the deep sympathy your voice expresses, when I speak of my lesser sorrows, add to my interest for you. You stand here shelterless. You have cast yourself from among us, and you wither on this wild plain, forlorn and helpless. Some dreadful calamity must have befallen you. Do not turn from me, I do not ask you to reveal it. I only entreat you to listen to me, and to become familiar with the voice of consolation and kindness. If pity, and admiration, and gentle affection can wean you from despair, let me attempt the task. I cannot see your look of deep grief without endeavouring to restore you to happier feelings. Unbend your brow, relax the stern melancholy of your regard, permit a friend, a sincere, affectionate friend, I will be one, to convey some relief, some momentary pause to your sufferings. Do not think that I would intrude upon your confidence, I only ask for your patience. Do not for ever look sorrow and never speak it, utter one word of bitter complaint, and I will reprove it with gentle exhortation, and pour on you the balm of compassion. You must not shut me from all communion with you, do not tell me why you grieve, but only say the words, I am unhappy, and you will feel relieved, as if for some time excluded from all intercourse by some magic spell, 
you should suddenly enter again the pale of human sympathy. I entreat you to believe in my most sincere professions, and to treat me as an old and tried friend. Promise me never to forget me, never causelessly to banish me, but try to love me as one who would devote all his energies to make you happy. Give me the name of friend, I will fulfil its duties, and if for a moment complaint and sorrow would shape themselves into words, let me be near to speak peace to your vexed soul. I repeat his persuasions in faint terms, and cannot give you at the same time the tone and gesture that animated them. Like a refreshing shower on an arid soil, they revived me, and though I still kept their cause secret, he led me to pour forth my bitter complaints, and to clothe my woe in words of gall and fire. With all the energy of desperate grief, I told him how I had fallen at once from bliss to misery, how that for me there was no joy, no hope, that death, however bitter, would be the welcome seal to all my pangs. Death the skeleton was to be beautiful as love. I know not why, but I found it sweet to utter these words to human ears, and though I derided all consolation, yet I was pleased to see it offered me with gentleness and kindness. I listened quietly, and when he paused, would again pour out my misery in expressions that showed how far too deep my wounds were for any cure. But now, also, I began to reap the fruits of my perfect solitude. I had become unfit for any intercourse, even with Woodville, the most gentle and sympathising creature that existed. I had become captious and unreasonable, my temper was utterly spoilt. I called him my friend, but I viewed all he did with jealous eyes. If he did not visit me at the appointed hour, I was angry, very angry, and told him that, if indeed he did feel interest in me, it was cold, and could not be fitted for me, a poor worn creature whose deep unhappiness demanded much more than his worldly heart could give. When for a moment I imagined that his manner was cold, I would fretfully say to him, I was at peace before you came. Why have you disturbed me? You have given me new wants, and now you trifle with me, as if my heart were as whole as yours, as if I were not, in truth, a shorn lamb, thrust out on the bleak hillside, tortured by every blast. I wished for no friend, no sympathy. I avoided you, you know I did. But you forced yourself upon me, and gave me those wants which you see with triumph give you power over me. Oh, the brave power of the bitter north wind, which freezes the tears it has caused to shed! But I will not bear this. Go, the sun will rise and set, as before you came, and I shall sit among the pines, or wander on the heath weeping and complaining without wishing for you to listen. You are cruel, very cruel, to treat me who bleed at every pore in this rough manner. And then, when in answer to my peevish words, I saw his countenance bent with living pity on me, when I saw him, Gliocci griso, vemi con quel sembiante, che madre fa sopra figlio delirio, 
Paradiso, Canto One. I wept, and said, Oh, pardon me, you are good and kind, but I am not fit for life. Why am I obliged to live? To drag hour after hour, to see the trees wave their branches restlessly, to feel the air, and suffer in all I feel keenest agony. My frame is strong, but my soul sinks beneath this endurance of living anguish. Death is the goal that I would attain, but alas, I do not even see the end of the course. Do you, my compassionate friend, tell me how to die peacefully and innocently, and I will bless you. All that I, poor wretch, can desire is a painless death. But Woodville's words had magic in them, when beginning with the sweetest pity, he would raise me by degrees out of myself and my sorrows, until I wondered at my own selfishness. But he left me, and despair returned. The work of consolation was ever to begin anew. I often desired his entire absence, for I found that I was grown out of the ways of life, and that, by long seclusion, although I could support my accustomed grief, and drink the bitter daily draught with some degree of patience, yet I had become unfit for the slightest novelty of feeling. Expectation, and hopes, and affection, were all too much for me. I knew this, but at other times I was unreasonable, and laid the blame upon him, who was most blameless, and peevishly thought that, if his gentle soul were more gentle, if his intense sympathy were more intense, he could drive the fiend from my soul, and make me more human. I am, I thought, a tragedy, a character that he comes to see act. Now and then he gives me my cue, that I may make a speech more to his purpose. Perhaps he is already planning a poem in which I am to figure. I am a farce and play to him, but to me this is all dreary reality. He takes all the profit, and I bear all the burden. End of chapter 10